Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ancient Egypt is a land of mystery in many ways, a civilization removed from us by thousands of years, at least in some ways, and yet one that we know quite a lot about thanks to archaeology and historical scholarship. But at the same time, there are of course a lot of things about which we are still in the dark. There are nuances to the culture, life, and religion of the ancient Egyptians that are still being discovered. The religion of ancient Egypt is familiar to many. We all know the great gods like Ra, Osiris, and Amun, and some of the mythical stories surrounding them. By all accounts, with the exception of the revolution of Akhenaten in the Amarna period, Egypt's religion can be categorized as a polytheistic one. They believed in many different deities who all had different roles to play. But what if there's more to this story? Are there traces of a one, all-encompassing, absolute god in ancient Egypt, and if so, what does that mean for our understanding of their religion? When we talk about religions of the world, we often divide them into these simplistic categories, monotheism versus polytheism, for example. And while this can be helpful to get a general idea of their characteristics, this often simplifies things quite a lot. Monotheism, the belief in a single omnipotent god, seems like the diametrically opposite concept to polytheism, which is belief in many different gods. And in abstract conceptual terms, this may be true, but in historical reality, the distinctions haven't always been as clear as you might think. Many of the monotheistic traditions, especially in antiquity, often accepted lesser divine beings under god who did his bidding. 
And in many polytheistic religions, we often see the concept of a single absolute divinity standing above the pantheon of deities. In Hinduism, there are many gods and goddesses, as we all know, but in the Vedic tradition of Hinduism, there is also the concept of Brahman, a singular divine reality or principle, often referred to as the Lord in singular, of which the different deities are only manifestations. And in Shaivism, Shiva plays a similar role as the absolute divine principle. In the religion of ancient Greece, there were many gods of Olympus, but also often referenced to Hotheos, the god in the singular, referring to the highest god Zeus, who held the world in his hands and stood above the other gods. And of course, in the philosophical tradition, there is also talk about the Platonic One, or the good and the prime mover or unmoved mover of Aristotle, for example. In the religion of the Aztecs in Mesoamerica, they had the concept of Teot, a pantheistic adjacent concept denoting the ultimate divine reality at the essence and as the creating force of all things in the world, including the other gods. And in ancient Arabia, there appears to have been the concept of a high god which created the world and stands above other lesser deities and which was referred to as Al-Ilah or Allah. So as you can see, the theologies of polytheisms are often a lot more complicated than you might think, and often they aren't as far removed from monotheistic concepts as we tend to believe either. So then the question arises, what about Egypt? Is there a concept of a one absolute god in ancient Egyptian theology? Well, this has actually been quite a debate among scholars during the 20th century. The Egyptologist Eric Horning argued in his book Conceptions of God in Ancient Egypt that such a concept does not exist in the Egyptian tradition. But later, another Egyptologist, Jan Asman, countered by arguing in his book The Search for God in Ancient Egypt that yes, actually we do find such a concept. So let's explore some of the arguments for the concept of a one god in ancient Egypt and look at some of the suggestive evidence. First of all, if we look at works produced very late in Egypt's history, even after the fall of the pharaonic civilization, there are some tantalizing clues. Primarily in the Hermetic literature, such as in the famous Corpus Hermeticum, probably composed in Alexandria in the first few centuries AD, the idea of a singular god is all-pervading. Referred to as God or the Father, this divinity is all-embracing, one, and part of a monistic worldview. God is everything that is. These works were produced in Egypt, as I said, but this was an Egypt that had been under Hellenistic and Roman influence for many centuries at that point, and many of its ideas clearly come from a Greek intellectual tradition. But could this concept of the one God in the Hermetica have a direct line back into earlier periods of Egyptian theology? For that, of course, we need to rewind the clock. Now, first of all, it should be stated that the religion of ancient Egypt was unequivocally polytheistic. With the exception of the Amarna period, this is an inescapable truth about this tradition. The entire religious cult revolved around the deities of the pantheon. The gods were worshipped individually in the cultic sense through their embodiment in the statues and in a cosmic sense as the different natural phenomena in the world. Not symbolically, but literally. Ra, the sun god, was the sun. The entire cosmos was a divine display, every natural phenomenon being the very real presence of the gods in the world. Abstract forces that could also be localized in the cultic statues and thus worshipped through rituals performed by priests. 
the gods were also localized as associated with cities or regions. So Thebes or Waset was the city of Amun, for example, and Memphis was the city of Ta. The myths about the gods served as accounts of the world's creation and as archetypes to be mirrored or performed in their religious rituals. In all ways conceivable to the people of ancient Egypt, their religion was one that involved many different gods. Not only were these gods worshipped individually, but as Jan Asman argues in his book, the entire worship of an individual god was in connection to that god's relationship with the other deities of the pantheon. The world of the Egyptians was one of diversity and plurality, personified by the variety of the gods themselves. Perhaps the most central concept for this religious worldview was that of ma'at, meaning something like order, the order of the cosmos or universe itself, something that had to be maintained by appeasing the different gods through ritual and through the king's duty to maintain social justice and order. So we're not looking for some original monotheism here, as many early Christian Egyptologists did. In none of this should the very real fact of the plurality of divinity in ancient Egypt be neglected. With that said, like in many other polytheistic religions, as we've seen, the situation can also be a bit more complex than this, and in relation to this plurality, we sometimes do find pretty clear references to the concept of God in the singular, sometimes in the period of the Middle Kingdom, but especially during the New Kingdom period. Jan Asman makes a distinction in his book between what he calls implicit theology and explicit theology. Implicit theology means theology that is implicit in the polytheistic ritual cult that dominated Egyptian religion, while explicit theology is a separate category of theological speculation that in some ways runs parallel to it and gives birth to theological expressions that are quite unique. And this becomes apparent especially in the New Kingdom. Quote, Implicit and explicit theology thus originally had entirely different themes and referred to entirely different horizons of the experience of the world. Implicit theology had nothing to do with the beginning and end of time, or with the justification for the world and of evil. Rather, it revolved around sacred activities as they were carried out in the cult, through which it interpreted cosmic reality and in terms of which it made an account of the divine. This implicit theology of the cult is the kind that is unalterably polytheistic, being caught up in the multiplicity of the divine realm. Explicit theology, however, opened up for other kinds of ideas and conceptions of the divine, aspects that were more unitive. But to begin this exploration, paradoxically, we're going to begin by looking at a creation myth, something that is usually associated with what Jan Asman calls implicit theology. In the so-called creation myth of Heliopolis, which we find in some of the earliest pyramid texts, the creation of the world is conceived of as originating in the god Atum. Autumn is the one who came into being by himself in pre-existence, and who then produces the first gods, Shu, Er, and Tefnut, fire, through self-fertilization or even ejaculation. These gods then produce further gods, all of whom eventually become the basis for the cosmos. The name Autumn means both something like to be everything and to be nothing, as well as to be finished. He is the all from which everything comes into being. Quote, the cosmos emanated from autumn. Autumn turned himself into the cosmos. This is quite a complex philosophical concept that definitely reaches speculation beyond a simple implicit conceptualization of cultic rituals. Autumn is the all of non-existence from which all things come and which all things are. 
He emanates the other gods and thus the cosmos by creating them from himself. In other words, he is the other gods and he is the cosmos in some way. He is everything and he is nothing. This seems to at least indicate something close to what we are looking for, the idea of an absolute divinity that can even be conceptualized as standing above the other gods. And this autumn theology becomes even more explicit during the Middle Kingdom. In coffin texts from this period, meant to help a deceased in the afterlife, we witness some profound developments from the more mythical account to one of more explicit theology. Here, the children of Atom, Shu and Tefnut, are identified with life and Ma'at. And the text makes it clear that we are not really talking about separate gods, but a unity of three concepts. Quote, When I was alone in noon, inert, they were already with me. What follows is a poetic expression of creation as an awakening or coming into consciousness of the All-Lord, or Atom and the role that Shu and Tefnut play in that as, quote, he was one and became three. In another section, it is Shu or life himself who speaks, referring to Autumn, quote, he created me in his heart, he made me out of his radiant power, he was pregnant with me in his nose, I emerged from his nostrils. In other words, here, Shu or life becomes the very breath of Autumn, the creator god or the all from which all things emerge. As the breath of God, he is in a way identical to him, emphasizing that unity between them, and further states, quote, When he sent me to this earth, the Isle of Fire, and when I became Osiris, the son of Geb. Shu becomes Osiris, so here is an even more explicit reference to the idea that the gods are really one and the same. They all come from the All-Lord, whose breath, Shu, gives life to all things. A breath that also, in the cosmic sense, manifests as the actual wind or air that we experience. Remember, Shu is originally the god of air or wind. These are quite profound and complex ideas, as you can tell, but we are still kind of in the realm of mythology, even if the gods in this later expression especially becomes more abstract and are removed somewhat from their mythological roots, the language is essentially still polytheistic, so to say. But at the same time, during the Middle Kingdom, we see other evidence in non-religious literature. For example, the so-called instructions, collections of wisdom literature, in which the language more clearly develops from one of gods to god in the singular. In the instruction for King Medicare, likely a Middle Kingdom text, there is a section at the end that is especially interesting for our purposes, where it says, quote, One generation of mortals follow another, but God, the all-knowing, has concealed himself. There is none who can resist the might of the Lord of the hand, for it is he who can restrain all that the eyes can see. God must be revered, he who moves upon his unchanging path, whose images are made of costly stone and fashioned from copper. Shepherd the people, the cattle of God for it is for their sake that he created heaven and earth. He stilled the raging of the waters and created the wind so that their nostrils might live. They are his images who came forth from his body, and it is for their sake that he rises in the sky. And the text goes on like that for a while, but I don't need to quote any more for us to see that we are seeing quite a new expression of devotion and theology here. One that is not talking about a god among other gods, even seemingly a god especially exalted, but as god in the singular. God who creates and sustains all things. God in the form of a single absolute divinity. 
And these examples from the Middle Kingdom are only a foretaste, or perhaps the earliest indications of a development that would really flourish and culminate during the New Kingdom, especially in the 18th and 19th dynasties. The New Kingdom is an incredibly vibrant period in terms of religious and intellectual developments, and a lot is taking place here. First of all, and in connection to the official capital becoming located in Thebes, or Waset, the god associated with that locale, Amun, became especially prominent during this period. Over the course of the 18th dynasty, Amun became the highest and most important god. Especially in the combined form of Amun-Ra, in which he became identified with the sun god, this god came to have a very exalted place in Egyptian religion. And it is with this that we see a continuation of the theological speculation and expression that had begun in the Middle Kingdom. A lot of references to Amun-Ra take the form of God in the singular and being considered the God who has created all things. Not only this, but an entirely new conception of God's very nature emerges in the cult of Amun-Ra. He was no longer a distant deity that could only be reached through the cults or talked about in terms of mythical accounts. Now, Amun-Ra was a god with a will who could intervene in history and interact with the god in a different way. He was a personal god who was present to every individual and could be experienced by, quote, placing God in one's heart. Quote, one who listens to the entreaty of one in distress, gracious to one who calls to him, who saves the timorous from the hand of the violent, who pronounces justice between the poor and the rich, lord of cognition on whose lips is creative word, for whose sake the Nile inundation comes, the lord of affection, the great of love, when he comes, humankind lives. He who grants a clear road to every eye that was created in noon, whose radiance allows it to become light, over whose beauty the gods rejoice, at the sight of whom their hearts quicken. The sun god had always played a major role in the polytheistic religion of Egypt, but here his role is exalted above anything before. He is the one who, quote, devises everything that is. The god who, through his will and speech, creates all the gods and all of reality. It is he who, quote, creates what is created, who speaks and the gods come into being. This is a significant development and one that would have important consequences later on. Jan Osman writes, quote, As god of life, Amun is a god who speaks, a god who speaks and hears what is right, who imparts instructions, who pronounces judgments, who discerns and decides, a god of consciousness and convictions and thus of ethics, a personal god and thus a god of personal devotion and decision. In this sense, as a distinct personal god of life defined by speech, will, and consciousness, and as ethical authority, Amun was a new god, and his worship was a new religion. His role as the sun would prove especially fruitful for theological speculation, and this tendency eventually developed into what scholars often call the new solar theology, which placed the sun at the very center of religious worship and, in many places, almost did away with mythological accounts entirely. The sun god, in the form of Amun-Ra, as well as other names and forms, was THE god for pharaohs like Amenhotep III. As many of us know, it is also this that leads to the incredibly fascinating revolution of Akhenaten, who turned Egyptian religion upside down by creating a kind of monotheistic religion centered on the god Aten, or the sun disk. The so-called Amarna period of Akhenaten is covered fully in a previous episode, but basically puts, he conceived of the sun disk, Aten, and its light as the only god, and even suppressed the worship of other gods entirely, especially Amun. 
This was a radical change in many ways, but we can also see it as a development from the earlier theological tendencies that we have discussed. Akhenaten simply took these ideas to their most extreme conclusion. This event was traumatic for many Egyptians, and the movement of Akhenaten didn't really survive past his own death. After he died, it basically was abandoned eventually entirely. But just because his religion disappeared, that doesn't mean that all earlier theological developments disappeared also, or indeed that his revolution didn't have an effect on later religious life in Egypt. It definitely did. Because in the following 19th dynasty, we see perhaps the culmination and high point of the so-called explicit theology that had developed from the Middle Kingdom period. Not only in the sense that expressions about the personal god reach its culmination, which it does, uh, during the Ramesside period, the idea that the individual can have a personal relationship with god became a central mode of piety for farmers as well as for kings. Quote, The son of him who does not recognize you sets Amun, but he who recognizes you says it has risen in the forecourt. He who attacks you is in darkness, even when the whole land is in light, but he who places you in his heart, lo, his sun has risen. God, here in the form of Amun, can be recognized by the individual and, quote, placed in the heart. This is probably a response to the Amarna period in which all gods, especially Amun, were persecuted in favor of the Aten. The cult of Amun was forbidden, which restricted people from being able to worship the god in the traditional ways through the temples, for example. So instead, there developed an inner devotion. God was worshipped in secret in the heart of the devotee. And this way of relating to God continued into the 19th dynasty and beyond. But secondly, it is in the Ramesside period that we also get possibly the high point of theological expression relating to the idea of a one universal all-encompassing God. Of course, we should remember that after the Amarna period ended, the traditional polytheistic cult was reinstated and supported, so what appears is not a monotheism in the more strict definition of that word, such as what Akhenaten had tried to establish, but rather a more complex theology where the unity of God and the plurality of deities and the world is merged in a grand pantheistic formulation. Again, here it becomes clear that the conception of God in the singular is a very real concept that stands above the other gods or in which those gods are integrated. This all-encompassing God is the creator, the source of everything, moral guide and giver of life. Quote, Life belongs to you. There will be no other who gives life to every visage. You are the light that drives off evil. No eye lives that does not see you. You are the air that allows the throat to breathe. No animal lives that does without you. You are the inundation that keeps humankind alive. No face lives if you are not in it. As you can tell, the all-encompassing nature of this divinity is radical and formulates itself in a pantheistic way. God is everything. He embodies the cosmos. Quote, You are the sky. You are the earth. You are the netherworld. You are the water. You are the air between them. God is the hidden unity which manifests itself into the plurality of the gods who in themselves are the different aspects of the cosmos. He is the one and the all. Quote, Greetings to you soul one who makes himself into millions, who extends in length and breadth without bounds, equipped power that created itself, you ray a serpent with huge flame, rich in magic, mysterious of form, hidden Ba to whom reverence is shown. This is a universal god that exists in tandem with the many deities of the Egyptian pantheon. 
The polytheistic cults continued and remained the main form of religious expression in Egypt, but alongside this there was now a clear conception that beyond this plurality of manifestation, there was a single divine force of which these diverse gods were parts or aspects or manifestations perhaps. This is a theology which, quote, explains the various deities as aspects, names, forms of manifestation, in brief as imminent refractions of the transcendent unity of the single god. Sometimes this divinity could be especially associated with a particular god. In the New Kingdom it was often Amun, the hidden one. In later antiquity it was sometimes the goddess Isis who took on this role, but the concept remains the same. As Amun, God is the hidden one, the primordial transcendent unity, but as the other deities, God is the cosmos in its vast plurality. He is Ra, the sun, he is Shu, the air, and so on. This exalted conception of the divine, a kind of pantheistic theology with a single divinity at its center, came to dominate theological expression from the 19th dynasty and for the rest of the classical Egyptian civilization. All the way into the Hellenic and Roman periods, we continue to see these kinds of expressions. So we have seen how the theological speculation in Egypt gradually developed from the cultic aspects of the Old Kingdom, through speculation in the Middle and Early New Kingdom, through the trauma of the Amarna period, to reach a fascinating conception of the divine by the 19th dynasty and beyond. This conception of the divine might have married well with ideas developed in Greece about Hotheos, as well as philosophical speculations regarding concepts like the One and thinkers like Plato. So when we read texts from late antiquity like the Corpus Hermeticum, composed in Egypt, and find expressions of a single god at the essence of reality, we can perhaps see a continuity in terms of where these ideas come from. Not only from Greek philosophical speculation, but also from a long tradition of theology in native Egypt, which conceived of the divine in a similar way. Religion in ancient Egypt is of course a very complex topic, and there are many voices in scholarship, not all of whom agree on these questions. This has been one of those episodes that is especially indebted to and based on the work of a single scholar or historian, the Egyptologist Jan Osman, particularly as expressed in his book The Search for God in Ancient Egypt. So if you're interested in diving even deeper into this topic, I highly suggest you pick up his book and read it. And also I highly suggest you look at scholarship more generally, more broadly, and also consider opinions of scholars that may differ from what I have presented here. This episode has been one interpretation of the sources, an interpretation that might prove problematic in light of new evidence, something that's always very relevant when it comes to ancient Egypt, of course. But I think the argument is quite convincing, and it does provide a nice continuity with the kind of religious expressions that we find in Egypt in later antiquity. So as you can see, even in Egypt and in most polytheistic traditions, it is often a lot more complex than to simply say they believe in many different gods in complete contrast to the concept of monotheism. These terms are of course fuzzy and it depends on how we define them, but I think realizing these things is a good step towards a more comprehensive and truthful understanding of religious history and thought, particularly as it pertains to the world of ancient Egypt in this case. I hope you found this episode informative and interesting. You can look forward to more episodes on ancient Egypt in which we can explore various fascinating aspects of their religious tradition. But until then, I'll see you next time.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, fresh. 